Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 425 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Jill. Hi, Adam. How's it going? Good. How are you? Good. We'll pretend like we didn't just do an intro seconds so, before this. Now I'm tired, and I actually could not remember what our usual intro is. <laughs> Listen, you used so all... I'm surprised I remembered it. Use all your energy for the Saturday <laughs> one. That's okay. Uh, so, okay, today is a, a really, really cool episode. Um, I did two separate interviews, one with Jason Reynolds and one with Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. Uh, Dr. Kendi wrote the National Book Award winning title, uh, Stamped. And it, or sorry, Stamps from the Beginning was the original. And it was just this phenomenal book all about racism and like the history of racism in America and all this stuff. And but as I talked about in our monthly book title, it, it's an incredible and an important book, but it isn't the most approachable thing for younger readers. Uh, so Jason Reynolds, like the king of creating approachable content for mm-hmm. young readers, uh, collaborated with Dr. Kendi and created Stamped Racism, Anti-Racism, and You, a remix of Stamped from the Beginning. So he created a, a young adult version of the book, and it's it's phenomenal. I, I think I called it the most important YA book of the year in my mind. Um, so... I went to Indianapolis where Jason Reynolds happened to be at one of our school partners signing books and doing presentations for like, I think it was 1,800 kids. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, I did an interview with him in person, and it's a little bit different than normal. So the way this is going to do is I interviewed Dr. Kendi over the phone. So all the interview you'll hear first is with Dr. Kendi all about Stamped from the Beginning. We get really into his book. And then the second interview will be with Jason. And what I did with that was a little bit different. We talked a little bit about the book, but when I went to the school, they had prepared ahead of time where the students had a bunch of questions. And I just thought it'd be really cool to use the student questions for Jason. So yeah. um, the, there's a tone shift in this where the Dr. Kennedy conversation is extremely serious. And then Jason, is, it's a little bit more lighthearted and a lot right. of fun. Um Jason Reynolds is just like, I've got to meet him a few times now, and he's been on the podcast a few times. He's just like always the coolest guy yeah. in the room. I don't know how he's he does it. He's amazing. Um, he's also the current ambassador for Young People's Literature, I believe is I the official right. title. Um, yeah, he's just, man, he's just so nice. Na- like, even when I like, got to, like, I saw him, like, he's just like, wearing a hoodie and he looks like he's like kind of tired and then like every single student would come up to talk to him and like kind of like you did in the other intro like he just like would turn it on and he would be like just there for them and so engaged he like makes you feel like you're the only person Mm -hmm. there with him so great stuff um i think you guys will really really like this it's the book is phenomenal so man i remember when we didn't get author visits at school it was the best day yeah, the uh, we so I didn't get to do it. I didn't have a ton of them, and I certainly never had anyone like Jason Reynolds come. But I think we had Mark Brown who did the Arthur books. Yeah, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, your school is cooler than mine. <laughs> That's amazing. Are we always got like the local storyteller? Oh person. yeah, no, we had yeah we had Mark Brown. Man, that's so cool. And I will say uh, the school that we were at in Indianapolis, they they get like tons and like they have their library people who are big fans of the show um hey stacy hi rain they are that they the, the work they do for their students is just like awe-inspiring and there's their library is amazing and they've got libya or they have sora stuff all over the place nice. they, they rule uh so yeah that's that's this episode um if people want to get a hold of us how can they do it? I'm going to slowly say this so you can get your yawn out. <laughs> so if, if people want to get a hold of us, how can they do that? They can go to our website, professionalbooknerds.com, 
We are on social at Twitter and Instagram at ProBookNerds. You can email us at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. Yes, you can. Okay, I think that's everything. So like I mentioned, uh, the first part of this is going to be a conversation with Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, and then the second part of the conversation is going to be with Jason Reynolds. Jill was flagging me down. Yeah, I am. So we have had donations so far through our uh, the uh, fundraiser we're doing for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society of like the Cleveland area. Mm-hmm. So thank you to those who have um, donated so far. You can find the links for that um, on our social, I believe. Yeah, yes. and I'll put it in the show notes. Okay, and as in well. the show notes. Yeah, so we're um, both raising money for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society's Man and Woman of the Year big fundraising campaign. Um, so every dollar counts. So if you you know are in a position where you're able to donate, we would greatly appreciate it. Yes, thank you for pointing that out. It's been a few episodes since we mentioned it. So, okay, did I forget anything else? That, I think, is the only thing. Okay, all right, awesome. Well, I hope you guys enjoy these multiple conversations with Dr. Kendi and Jason Reynolds on the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. Hi, everybody. It's Adam, and I can't properly stress in an introduction what an honor it is to be joined by Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, a New York Times bestselling and National Book Award-winning author of How to Be an Anti-Racist, The Black Campus Movement, and Stamp from the Beginning. His next work, Anti-Racist Baby, will be coming out in June, and he's the founder of the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center and a 2019 Guggenheim Fellow. Simply put, he is one of the most important voices in our society today. Dr. Kennedy, thank you for joining me. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on the show. Absolutely. So uh, the kind of first half or potentially second half of of this episode is a conversation I had with Jason Reynolds, uh, where he and I talked a lot about stamped racism, anti-racism, and you, which I know is is a remix of your uh, National Book Award winning work. So kind of my first question for you is, how did that collaboration come to be with you and Jason? So I, in sort of discussing Stamp from the beginning, one of the things that sort of people continuously said to me, one of the forms of feedback that seemed to be unremit- uh persisting was that they people wanted young people to to read this book and and people also saying they they wish they learned this history of racist ideas in in middle school and high school and and so the more people suggested that young people should be reading this material the more we realized you know what let's sort of inquire about producing a a, a you know a wide version of of stamp in the beginning and i had already come to know jason and his work and admire him and his work, particularly in the ways in which he's able to meet young people where they are. Um, and and not only that, you know, talk about extremely complicated sort of topics um, with sort of his own voice, with a voice that's recognizable to, to young people. And, and so I thought he'd be a great fit um, to, to remixing this book. So... Was there any, you know, collaboration? And I know when you said about, you know, Jason, when, when I think of his work and how he connects with, with young readers, I think you're absolutely right. There's so few people in the world who are able to connect on a level with, with young readers as the way Jason does. So when it came to him 
remixing your book like how involved were you in the the process of of him writing it for young readers so i thought that a book for young readers based on the beginning needed to be almost completely rewritten and 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 because of that i i felt that it was critically important for me not in any way to be overbearing and and for me to sit back and 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 watch Jason sort of do what he does best. So you know, early on in the process, of course, we had a series of of discussions uh, about the text, and and I also sort of went through the entire book and pointed out what I considered to be the most important stories um, or ideas or points in every single chapter, um, and. And, you know, I, I hope that that sort of served as somewhat of a sort of framework that he then could sort of hang the, the entire book on. But but I, I wanted to sort of give him the freedom to, to, to essentially do what he does best. Yeah. I mean, you're, I would say it's definitely in just about the safest possible hands you could have put it in when it comes to young adult writers, just the, the passion that he he has for connecting with, with his fans, I, I think. That people are absolutely gonna just adore this book, and it's so important. And of course, there's there's no remixed version without your groundbreaking original version. And so I know that you meticulously researched everything. And but I'm I'm curious how you decided to hone in on on where you chose to focus. You know, people like Cotton Mather and William Lloyd Garrison and everything. How did you come to the people that you wanted to focus your original story on? Well, I was trying to figure out a way. To, to make this really 500-year history accessible, um, really sort of hone in on on its on the narrative voice, on sort of the pace of uh, of the book, and and I realized that a way to sort of make the book accessible, a way to in many ways organize the sort of wealth of details that I was going to sort of share uh, in the in the text was through a person's story and uh, through their life and through their life of ideas and so we decided well, what if we sort of take these five periods in American history and 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 thought through okay what pivotal figure was literally at the center of the racial debate that we're trying to that I was trying to um, sort of chronicle in this text and so we ended up sort of selecting those figures, Cotton Mather for early sort of colonial America to Thomas Jefferson from the lead up to the American Revolution up until the eve of the abolitionist movement. And then William Lloyd Garrison sort of takes over from the abolitionist movement to the end of Reconstruction. And then W.E.B. Du Bois from the end of Reconstruction to the civil rights movement and then from civil rights to the president and Angela Davis. When you were being raised and you were in you know middle school and, and high school, I have to imagine just thinking about my own upbringing and I remember that these history books now looking back, they really omitted so much important information, and I know a lot of that has to do with who was writing the book and the perspective that they wanted to to bring forward but is that what you sort of had in mind while you were writing your book is sort of finding a, a new, more authentic way to present the history? 
Well, I mean, I principally, of course, wanted to share the history of racist and, and anti-racist ideas and, and more or less their collision over the course of, of history. But really, in order to truly sort of prevent that story, particularly and demonstrate its impact on American history as American history was impacting the history of racist ideas, I had to sort of share the history of America. And, and in sharing that history of America, I had to chronicle sort of moments in time and events and, and ideas that many Americans don't know about. I had to actually certainly show a more authentic um, racialized history of America um, in order to really show this larger or you know, this larger history of, of racist ideas. But, but then I also knew that as a college professor that I have so many students coming into my history classes saying things like I never <laughs> learned about this before. And why is this the first time I'm learning about this history of racism or this element of African-American history? And, and in many ways, students would be resentful, would be upset at their high schools and, and middle schools for either not teaching them this or teaching them in a way that actually wasn't complex enough or even wasn't, in some cases, truthful. And, and so certainly we wanted this book to not only show the history of of racism and, and anti-racism, but really to even show the history of, of America in, in ways that it's not typically uh, presented to young people. You touched on something that I, I really uh, want to focus in on for, for just a moment. You mentioned you know, all of the, your students that are coming into your class, and I would imagine um, on balance one of the things they have in, in common is wanting to learn this information and being open to the ideas that you're presenting to them. And um, recently I was able to, I sat down with Leila Saad, who wrote uh, Me and White Supremacy, which just came out um, as a book, uh, I think last week. And it, you know, was a, this wonderful thing that started on Instagram. And it's all about confronting people's white supremacy and, and understanding their place in it and taking action. And something she and I spoke about was people who, unlike your students who are likely open-minded to learning it, is trying to approach people in our society who are not only don't believe that they are part of a problem, but they don't believe that there is you know, racism going on in our world, even though it, it appears to be obvious. So I'm curious, as someone who you know is constantly being asked questions about racism and, and anti-racism and all these different things, how do you approach trying to start a dialogue with people who are just completely closed-minded, or, or is that something that you think your, your time is better spent elsewhere? So, first and foremost, I, I try to discuss why that's the case. And, and so in my work, I talk about how the heartbeat of, of racism is denial, that being closed to the idea that one is racist that one's institution is racist, that one's society is racist, that the policies and ideas that a person is supporting are indeed racist. This is the heartbeat of racism itself. And, and so it's not surprising for me and to me that, that some people are closed-minded. And so part of my message is to explain to people precisely why they're closed-minded, <laughs> that that is that that is the function of racism itself to close them off to their own racism. And, and, and I think one of the functions of anti-racism, by contrast, is to open themselves up 
to their own racism, you know, open themselves up to the ways in which um, the world, um, that the racial groups are, are equals. Cause them to realize that the, that the problem is actually not bad policy, bad people, but indeed bad policy. One of uh, the major takeaways I took from How to Be Anti-Racist is you, and you've talked a lot about this on you know, various shows and, and speeches, but the point being that you know, racist isn't a permanent state. It's, it's how you're acting in that moment. And I just something that blows me away by you know, watching you speak and, and talk about these things is you appear to have such positivity and belief in the possibility of change. And I just, you know, what keeps you going? Because I have to imagine you are faced with people who, you know, speaking to about those closed minded people. I have to imagine you're confronted with people who just completely are so closed off to your message. Like, how do you maintain that positivity and that belief that change is possible? So, yes, I mean, I, I regularly sort of and confronted with with people who sort of demonstrate their their close-mindedness and certainly that can be dispiriting but also regularly um in conversation with people who are explaining to me how much my work or the work of of someone else has challenged them is, is, is causing them to change their their racial view of the world is calling them to acknowledge their 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 own racism is causing them to strive to to be an anti-racist and i receive these messages from people who are talking about and um how they're sort of going about changing almost daily and and so certainly these these people give me hope um and and i mean if anything this book stamp uh gives me a tremendous amount of hope because the students all over this country who are going to be able to read this book at 12 years old, at 14 years old, at, at 16 years old, could potentially develop in, an anti-racist mentality that will protect them from believing that a particular person is inherently different than they are because of the different color of their skin. Protect them from many of the things us adults are still struggling with to this day. Um, they can get a head start on us. And, and so I'm really, really excited, uh, you know, to get this book before as many young people as possible. I, I'm so glad you, you brought that brought that about young people, because, you know, it's it's said so often that racist actions are not inherent in us. It's it's a learned behavior that people pick up from the people that they're surrounded by and, and the upbringing that they have. And so having this book in young readers' hands is, is so essential. And so sort of along those lines, what made you want to write uh, Anti-Racist Baby, which I know it doesn't come out till June, but I love that um, in my mind, and you can correct me if I'm completely off base, but I love that, you know, for so long you've, you've written all this, uh, all this content, these books and these essays and everything that's very much more for an adult view. And then you work with Jason on this young adult version. And then now you're, you're too uh, kind of like, children's books. So what made you want to go even further down uh, the age brackets? Well, I, I think, you know, going back to our last, the last sort of question and, and even your, your response, I think it's critical for us to recognize that we're either raising children to be racist or anti-racist. 
there's no in between. There's no raising a baby to be colorblind or not racist. And studies show that people as young as three years old start sort of having a racial um, perception of the world, uh, start recognizing sort of racial distinction, potentially even start consuming racist ideas. And, and so for me, it was critical to not only, of course, work on this book with Jason to get it into the, to the hands of, of middle schoolers and, and high schoolers, but, but to get it into the hands of the youngest people in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that we can begin raising these babies at the moment that they begin to start experiencing race, we, we already begin to start sort of nurturing them to be anti-racist. Uh, I have talked a lot about it on, on this podcast, but I was very fortunate. The city that I grew up in is uh, where Toni Morrison is from, Lorraine, Ohio, very tiny, small little city. And um, because of our city's pride of having Toni Morrison be from where we were, her books were required reading, admittedly probably even younger than we should have been approaching them, but it was something that inspired me. And and I knew I also have a, a, mo- a mother who was a, a teacher for 40 years. And so they were my family. I was very fortunate. They were very open-minded to making sure that we were getting as much diverse literature as possible. And, and that was always so inspiring and especially Toni Morrison's words. So I'm curious when, when you were growing up, like what were some of the authors and books that inspired you and maybe led you down the path that you have gone on since then? So I think in, in one of the ways in which Jason and I connected is that we, when we were both younger, we were not big readers. Mm-hmm. If anything, we, we both talked about hating reading. <laughs> and we, did, we didn't like reading. And, and I can remember very distinctly, you know, telling my parents in, in high school that I didn't like reading. But as I got older, and, you know, Jason talks about this, mm-hmm. that, you know, we realized that it wasn't that we hated books, it's that we hated boring books. And, and the books <laughs> typically in, in front of us were, were either boring or did not really relate to us. So for me, I didn't really develop a my love of reading did not really develop until college, potentially mm-hmm. until my first English 101 course at Florida A&M University, where I, for the first time, read authors like James Baldwin and, and Zoe Neale Hurston and others. Yeah, I was, I was kind of laughing when you were talking about it, because that the few times I've been fortunate to sit down with Jason, exactly what you said is he, he brings it up all the time, and I'm still blown away that both of you are... are are the prominent voices in literature the way that you are for exactly that reason. But it gives me hope for people to kind of get back to and sort of, you know, tie a bow in our conversation about stamps is, you know, if people can become so passionate about literature by, you know, you know, so much, you know, later in life, seeing books that they finally do love, it gives me hope that people can read your work and Jason's work and know that it, it really isn't ever too late to, change course in the way that you're perceiving the other people around us. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's precisely the point. And I think in many ways, it, it, I know it humbles me, and I'm sure it humbles Jason. And I think it also allows us to really relate to those young people who aren't big readers. And, and also it causes us to say, 
they're not to blame because they're not reading. Authors are to blame. Literature are to blame. Publishing is to blame. How do we create and produce books that will excite these children, that will get them want to devour these books? And, and so, it, you know, I think it puts a, a good amount of pressure on us to produce books, and it puts a good amount of pressure on, on, on the community of writers who are writing for young people, particularly this new, younger sort of community of, of color um, uh, writers who are, you know, who are writing for, for the young people um, on racial issues. I mean, I think, I, think these, I think we take it very seriously, ensuring that we put the best product before these, these young people. Well, the the book is, is so important, and I'm I was so excited when I first learned that you and Jason were doing this together, and just making the incredibly important book that you written had written before even more accessible to younger readers. So, first off, thank you for providing this to the world, and and also, Dr. Kenny, thank you for joining me today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on the show. Hi, everybody. It's Adam. I'm hanging out just outside of Indianapolis, and I'm super excited to be joined by Jason Reynolds once again, who I would lead with all the books you wrote, but instead I'm going to call you with your newest thing, which is the National Ambassador for Young People's Literature. So first off, congratulations. Thank you. That's amazing. It is. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. did, I, before I get into, I have all these questions from these students that I'm going to ask for a little bit of a different type of uh, episode today. But before that, like, I'm just curious, do they, is that something where like you get a phone call from Carla? <laughs> like, how does that go down? Did it's, you know? It's, it's something like that. I yeah. mean, they, they reach out to the publisher. So mm-hmm. it's sort of the Library of Congress and the CBC uh, and every child a reader reaches out to the publisher and mm-hmm. say, well, we want to offer this appointment to this person yeah. um, and they have this amount of time mm-hmm. to reject it or to accept it. Um, it's intense and it's all super hush-hush. It's like you can't tell anybody for like two months. Like, <laughs> it's a whole it's a whole thing, but it's cool. And, and it's sort of like we don you this thing. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's cool. I was just imagining it being, which obviously it's not, but I was imagining it being like when they tell uh, NFL people that they made the Hall of Fame, and there's that big, like six foot ten, like four hundred pound dude from the NFL who like just shows up. Shows up. I was just imagining like Dr. Hayden just that's showing up should, at your house. Yeah, that's what she should. He yeah. show up at your house with like a secret envelope. Yeah, like. <laughs> Jason, congratulate. We'd like to like extend this offer to you. So, all right, so like I said, I normally we I ask I dive into a whole bunch of the book stuff, which I would yeah. love to do, but. I got a email from the lovely people at the school with all these questions. So I'm going to say the kid's first name and the, some of these questions. I'm not going to use their last name for privacy. Of I don't want to get in trouble. So the first one is from Samuel, and he wants to know, where did you grow up, and did that influence your writing at all? So I grew up uh, in D.C. and then just outside of D.C. in a place called Oxen Hill. And uh, it was a weird kind of – it was a weird area because um, – you had sort of working class people, and then you had sort of lower middle class folks, and everyone was sort of, you know, every, just everyday salt of the earth. Mm-hmm. You know, there's corner stores, and there's movie theater, and there's buses and subways, and you know, all that kind of stuff. And that's sort of the way I grew up. I grew up next to a school teacher on one side, uh, and a preacher on the other side, 
uh, whose kids were knuckleheads. Uh, and then there was like, you know, like it, it was sort of the, one of these colorful communities where mm-hmm. you got a little bit of everything. The elders, ton of kids getting in trouble and uh, all the things that sort of make up a neighborhood is, is how I grew up. My mom sort of being a neighborhood mom and taking care of everybody and scolding us all. Yeah. And, you know, like I grew up in that environment, but we would go get on a bus, take, take the train to, you know, other parts of the city mm-hmm. and do other things that we shouldn't have been doing. Yeah. And all of that stuff influences my work. But also, I spent half my life in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of Brooklyn stuff in there, too, because I think that was sort of a, a whole different kind of experience. A similar neighborhood, just sort of times 10, right? Yeah. Because, because, because the population density is different. Yeah. But it's very similar in terms of the sort of uh, excitement and the different kind of people, kinds of people. It's just, you know... It's it's five hundred people more. in a block. Yeah, you know. I was imagining that feels that feels a lot like what um, like look both ways. Like that's exactly. a lot of those stories feel exactly, like that. Exactly. Um, okay, so Dylan wants to know if you could pick one of your books that you've written to write a sequel to. What would it be? I'm assuming we're not going to go with the track ones, which are like no, kinda. No, I, it would probably honestly it'd be either um, uh, Boy in the Black Suit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would tell the story of of love, the the girl in that story. Or it would be when I was the greatest and I would tell the story of needles. Nice. Yeah. Uh, Abby wants to know what you would consider your biggest accomplishment. My biggest accomplishment. <laughs> you know, it's tricky. You know, I, what I'll say is I, I think it's tough, right? Because I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of a person who keeps his head down, yeah. right? I just kind of do my work every day and the accomplishments sort of come and go for mm-hmm. me. Um, but I think the one thing that I will always cherish is the moment I was able to announce the two moments I've been able to take my mother to the National Book Award. Oh, yeah. There's something about, I mean, it's like the Grammys for us. It's like the Oscars for us. Uh-huh. My mom is 74 years old, and the first time we went, she we got to watch, or she got to watch John Lewis beat me for the National Book Award, well, right? But it's kind of like, in that moment, you're like, eh. you're like yeah. yeah. Like, can you be upset about the fact that your 72-year-old mother is watching one of her contemporaries mm-hmm. win a National Book Award um, with her son in the room? Mm-hmm. Right. I could I could imagine her saying like if you had won that one be like almost like how dare you that's John Lewis how dare you <laughs> was she, the truth is what she really said was she, she leaned over and she said I love John Lewis but I'm rooting for you yeah, that, <laughs> she, that's what she really she said she John to know um, so I'm going to keep going because we don't have a ton of time I want to get as many of these in as possible get well John Lewis by the way yes get absolutely well, uh, Yashbeer wants to know what do you think is the most fun part about writing books finishing <laughs> There's nothing better than to be done writing. Uh-huh. Writing is difficult. And I love sort of thinking and imagining these worlds and these people and thinking about my family and friends and all of that stuff is incredible. But the truth is the process of writing is 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 hard. Mm-hmm. It's always hard. Even if you're in, in stride and you're in the flow. It's difficult, mm-hmm. um, and so they, but there's no greater feeling than when it's over. It's like running a marathon. Yeah, like that runner's high, and then when you cross that line, you 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 suddenly get am, you get amnesia, and you're like, mm-hmm. I'm ready to do this all over. <laughs> That's what it means to write a book. You know? uh, my coworker and I were driving to the school today, and I was talking about a lot of the authors that I've chatted with who like they it takes them a long time to write books from one to the other because of how crazy their their schedule is. Like uh, Colson Whitehead told us, like he can't write on a plane in a hotel, and he just struggles. So between Underground Railroad and Nickel Boys was a long time for him. Yeah. Are you able, because you're, we were talking before, so recording, like your schedule is oh, bananas. Yeah. Are you able to write on the road? No sweat. Yeah. 
Seriously, I can ride on airplanes, I can ride on the back of trains, I can ride in, in hotel rooms. Over time, I just developed the muscle because I don't have a choice. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, I don't, like, the difference is that in lit fiction, like, what Colson's writing is that there's a little more space there in general. Mm-hmm. The children's literature uh, sort of sector moves at a different clip. Yeah. I don't have that. Like I don't have that luxury yeah. to take five years off. Right? <laughs> it's like no, like you have to be producing, and maybe not at one a year, like I, or two a year, like I've been doing for so long. But you, you know, it's it's difficult. Children are growing mm-hmm. and changing, and so you kind of got to be on the pulse a little more. Yeah, if you take five years between a book and that yeah, that eight year old, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so. Michael, Only Jandy Nelson can do it. Yeah. Sorry, Jandy Nelson. She can do it. <laughs> uh, let's see. Michael wants to know, did any of your personal experiences inspire you to want to become a writer? Yeah, of course. I mean, a lot of all of my personal experiences. I mean, I grew up in a storytelling household. I grew up with a, a raucous family who sat around the table and, and lied, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone wanted to see who had the best lie, who could tell the most creative story over Thanksgiving dinner, right? Yeah. And all of it was nonsense, but we liked it, and it mm-hmm. was cool for the kids to sit and listen to our uncles and aunties lie. Uh, and I also grew up a kid who studied and read rap lyrics and read poetry, and I understood the storytelling elements of music. Loved it. Mm-hmm. Like my family played music all the time in the house, and I would listen to Tracy Chapman weave stories. I'd listen to, you know, Sam Cooke weave stories. It's all storytelling. Narrative is all around us. Mm-hmm. And so for me to want to grow up and be this felt natural to me because my entire life has been filled with narrative, not books per se, mm-hmm. but narrative. Uh, I've, I've been drowning, drenched in narrative since I was a child. It's been the glue. Uh, to sort of explain some of the some of the inexplicable parts of my life. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned the rap lyrics thing. I'll never forget my my mom, my little tiny Caucasian mom, mm-hmm. ba- buying me the the Tupac book, the book of poems, the Rosa grew from, from concrete. And I'll never forget her being like, "This is a storyteller. It doesn't matter what a, what they what they look like, how they convey their stories. Sure. It's all story or even the way he was writing those words, mm-hmm. right? Like using Z's for S's and using right, like yeah." That's awesome. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, okay, so Skylar wants to know, how can you relate to younger people so well? Being so old. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't put that second that, part the in there, but it's the subtext. Exactly. Uh, the truth is, is that, you know, there's a theory that all of us get stuck between 12 and 17. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we may not always tap into that, but I do. I mm-hmm. live in that world. I live in that space. I remember who I was at 12 years old. I still suffer from the same anxieties I had back then. I remember who I was at 16 and 17, and I hold on to that person. It's the only reason that I can do this stuff now is because at 16, I really believe that I could do whatever I want. The irreverence mm-hmm. I have at 36 is the irreverence that I formed at 16, mm-hmm. and I hold on to it every single day, right? And and I and I also spend time with kids every day. Yeah, you can't you can't show what you don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm around them, and I'm humble enough to ask them questions. Just now, they explained to me this whole baby thing, right. right? Like these little teeny babies. But you gotta you gotta want to know. You mm-hmm. gotta be interested. You gotta want to learn their dances. You can't be afraid of embarrassing yourself. You gotta want to play their video games. You gotta want to wear their sneakers, listen to their music. Mm-hmm. All these things that feel so distant from us only take a little bit of effort to mm-hmm. learn because most of it the big things the overarching things are still the same it's just the details that have changed and lastly i say i grew up with rap music mm-hmm. when i grew up rap music was a, was, a, was a music coming out of small black poor communities and that music grew up to become the language of youth around the world mm-hmm. and it just so happens to be my natural language it's a cheat code <laughs> does it feel like you're when you're writing stories about younger people i was talked to um a British author recently, David Nichols, he talked about how he writes kind of these 
young adult books and they feel real nostalgic for him like mm. does it feel like a nostalgic experience writing about these younger kids or is it more so because of all the things that you you're just mentioning how you learn from students nowadays yeah. it's different it's a bit of both mm-hmm. some of that stuff is me tapping back into that time i mean these stories are real stories about myself and my friends as kids right a lot yeah. of this stuff really happened and uh so that part of it is nostalgic but but i also know that they're not like they're not exceptional stories the reason it works is because it still happens mm-hmm. right us trying to figure out how we're going to approach somebody of the opposite sex doesn't ever go away yeah us trying to figure out how to be cool when we feel so insecure and strange doesn't go away us okay. trying to smell good when we know we don't <laughs> and, then, and then we try to smell better and it makes us smell worse yeah never changes these are things that don't don't ever this is a part of the human condition that's the beauty of it is that it is so consistent mm-hmm. uh madison wants to know what's the most difficult book that you've ever written well, it depends. I mean, the most difficult book emotionally would probably be All American Boys. Yeah. The, the most difficult book, sort of, you know, in terms of craft, would probably be As Brave As You. Mm-hmm. That book was a beast of a book to write. So many moving parts. And you, it was the first book that I'd written in third person. Uh, it was the first middle grade book that I'd written. So I was learning on the fly on how to do all those things. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was the first book outside of a city because it was in it was in sort of a, a rural setting. Yeah. Uh, that book really gave me a hard time, but I think it's probably one of the best books craft-wise that I've ever written. Mm-hmm. What about, I'm curious, did it feel challenging to write Long Way Down, or was it no. a little bit easier? No, I wrote Long Way Down as a straight-ahead novel first. Okay. Turned it in, and my, my, my agent was like, I love it, but no one's going to believe that this story takes place in 60 seconds, and it takes six weeks to read, yeah. right? And so it's like, you need, this is, you've always, I've been talking about writing a, a novel in verse, because poetry was my original discipline, it's what I was trained in. Yeah. Um, and I've been trying to figure out how to write a novel with time constraints. Mm-hmm. How do we play around with the idea of a very tight time scope? And uh, my agent said, maybe this could be the one that you do in verse, because you got to be careful. Not every book works yeah. in verse, right? And so... Uh, when I started breaking it down and, and reworking the, the story, it, it actually was I mean, mm-hmm. it, it second nature. Like that, that's second nature for me. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I think this is my favorite of these questions. It's fantastic. Uh, Akinvir, I want to hope I'm saying that right. Okay, I got a, I got a nod. Yes. Uh, what got you to be an author? Because you look way different than any other author I've ever met. <laughs> I could not ask. This is like my favorite question I've ever seen. <laughs> So it, it's so funny because I've gotten that so often. You walk into school, they're like, that's what he looked like. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, sneakers, a T-shirt, right? Right. long hair, tattoos. You know what? I think I've always sort of believed. I think that my mom sort of made us feel this way. Like, if, you, if you're good enough, mm-hmm. don't matter. You, you could be whoever you want to be. If you're good enough, nobody's going to turn away greatness. Yeah. No matter what you look like. Right? If it's working... Nobody, then you're then you're an asset. Mm-hmm. Make yourself a necessity. Make yourself needed, and then it don't matter what you look like, yeah. right? And so I, I think part of and, and and please please know that it's intentional, right? Yes, this is who I am every day. T-shirt, jeans, sneakers. Like I'm, this is who I am. Yeah. But I, but I, I know that sometimes I'm walking into quote unquote professional spaces and I could tighten up a little bit. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, if there are children there, they need to see mm-hmm. that this is this is like I'm you. Yeah, I'm you. I'm no different than you. I come from where you come from. I speak the language you speak. I look like you. I look like your big brother, mm-hmm. right? Like I, and, and it's important that you know that if I look like this and I can do this, then you can too. Yeah, you know what? Alan Iverson did it for me. Yeah, remember Alan Iverson? Absolutely. It was such a big deal. He had cornrows and tattoos and diamond earrings, and baggy shorts, and, and baggy oh shorts right? Yeah. And we're like, yo, 
He looked like us. He uh-huh. looked like he come from my neighborhood. Yeah. And and there's something really empowering mm-hmm. about that. Our bodies matter in a space. I will never forget. I think my favorite moment that involved you also involved uh, the first person I ever interviewed was uh, Marika Niekamp. Mm-hmm. And you guys were at BookCon. And you guys gave a, you gave a presentation in front of, oh, there was like 2,000 people in the room. It was a ridiculous yeah. room. But you spoke, and then she spoke. And I couldn't, like, picture a more perfect, like, example of what an author looks like because you two couldn't be more different she's a tiny little dutch lady with pink and purple hair and she's walking with a cane and you both talked about your life story and the fact is that young adult stories and really just stories in general come from all walks of life and all people yeah i'm so glad we got over the elbow patches man (laughs) i'm all for it if it's your thing but if it ain't it don't have to be absolutely (laughs) uh oof this is a big one this is tough harmony wants to know what do you feel is the most important book you've ever written the book that's coming out yeah in march okay yeah yeah it's called stamped Mm -hmm. uh racism anti-racism in you and it's a it's basically sort of a snapshot of the definitive history of race in america it's the it's the book it's a non-fiction book i want to change the way that we are even teaching non-fiction to young people non-fiction is never written with young people in mind fiction is non-fiction never is right they we believe that if we pare the story down that suddenly it is it is more palatable for for a young person when really we should change the entire tone Mm -hmm. right let's let's figure out how to make this thing like music let's figure out how to make it really interesting and engaging and they make them want to read information right and this information i think is the most important information that our country has to offer because it's the information that we're most afraid of Mm -hmm. and it's the information that the the lack of this information is what's poisoned us and i I think these kids these young folks this generation will be the generation to turn that corner but we just got to provide them with the weapons Mm -hmm. and this book could very well be one of the many weapons they'll need to understand how to have Um, how to change the lexicon and the vocabulary around race. Because if we change the language around race, then we can actually change the conversation. If we can change the conversation, then we can change the culture, Mm -hmm. right? But you gotta gotta give them the lexicon Mm -hmm. to have unemotional, informed conversations. And that's what this book is to do, is to say, yes, there are some serious issues around race in this country that have been here far before you were born. Mm -hmm. Yes, I am expecting you to help to fix this problem. Sorry, but that is the truth. And there's a history that has led up to this moment to help you better understand that everything in this country has led us here and has gotten us here and has been inequitable and unfair in this great country that we love. But if we really love it like we say we do, we have to understand it, understand its history, understand its present, and critique it as such. That's amazing. So, all right, just the last question to leave you on then. What do you think is the most important book you've ever read? That's a tough one, you know. I'll, I'll say that one of the books that changed my life or really shook me to the core was the autobiography of Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. I think it's a perfect book. I think that book, James Baldwin's The Fire Next Time, Jasmine Ward's Salvage the Bones, these books sort of stuck to me in a way that changed me chemically, yeah. changed the way I thought about language, changed the way I thought about myself mm-hmm. um, and the world around me, and changed the way I thought about possibilities of yeah. what I could do and be in my life. That's, you are an American treasure. Thank Jason, you. thank you so much for joining me my today. My pleasure. Appreciate you. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald and presented by Rakuten Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com. 
You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply.